Osteobites is a weekly osteosarcoma webinar and podcast presented by MIB agents. Today we're speaking with Dr. Brian Crompton, pediatric oncologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Our panelists today are OsteoWarriors and junior board members Brian Kennington and Andrew Basaga. I'm your host, Anne Graham, president of MIB Agent. Welcome to Osteobites, everybody. Um, I had some of my favorite um, snacks, which have been my favorite since kindergarten. Like I couldn't believe something could taste so good. Like I remember the moment that I first had this snack and I brought them for our um, Osteobites today and I ate them all <laughs> before I even started. Um, that makes me both happy and sad. Um, <laughs> you guys have your snacks too. Let's go. This is going to be awesome. We are speaking today with Dr. Brian Crompton of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. I've wanted to talk to him more about his work since we first met at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard in June 2019. Um, he has some really interesting work in osteosarcoma that I'm excited to hear about and share with you. Today we have an all OsteoWarrior panel um, half of whom are present today. Um, our OsteoWarrior panel is um, made up of, of um, osteosarcoma survivors and junior board members. Um, Ryan Kennington is here and Andrew Basaga will be joining us. He is a student and he gets out of class at 320, so he's going to jump on later on. Um, but he's amazing, OsteoWarrior and, and junior board member. I'm your host, Anne Graham, also an osteo-warrior and president of MIB Agents. MIB Agents, in case you're unsure, is a leading pediatric osteosarcoma nonprofit dedicated to making it better for a community of patients, caregivers, doctors, and researchers with the goal of less toxic, more effective treatments and a cure for this aggressive bone cancer. Our mission is in our name, MIB, make it better, for kids with osteosarcoma. We know that there has never been a better time in the history of the world for discovery, especially true for osteosarcoma, where we are certainly due for better treatments and a cure. Osteosarcoma is the oldest known cancer with a long history of taking down dinosaurs, ancient Egyptians, and currently preys on our kids. Every week we hear from the top osteosarcoma researchers, developers, and physicians across the country who share their work with us and their colleagues in a spirit of collaboration and a shared mission to make it better. With that, all of that, Dr. Crompton, would you get us started by introducing yourself, please? Yeah, hi everybody. Uh, it's super exciting to be here. Um, I don't always know exactly how to describe myself, but I'm a, I'm, I'm a pediatric oncologist, um, very focused. Uh, my clinical practice is focused on pediatric solid tumors. Um, I'm very passionate about improving care for um, patients with sarcomas in particular, and definitely a focus on bone sarcomas. Um, and uh, I have, I run a translational research lab where we, uh, you know, a lot, most of what we do and everything I'm going to talk about today is sort of focused on leveraging genomics, not just for discovery and, and sort of basic science discovery, but also for really, we're somewhat focused on trying to improve our understanding of how patients respond to therapy and trying to improve the way we implement therapy. Uh, using genomics. And so that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. Hi, my name is uh, Ryan. I am an osteo-warrior. I was diagnosed with osteosarcoma back in 2014 in the uh, head of my right femur. 
Uh, I had a limb side losing surgery, and I've been NED for four years now, I think. Getting there. Um, <laughs> I just graduated from the University of Delaware back in the spring, um, and I'm now a full-time member of the Schiffman Lab. So um, I thought I'd start just a little bit to talk a little bit about sort of conceptually why I think our approaches are so important, because I think uh, we sometimes skip over that and go right to our science. You know, the reason the reason we've made any progress um, in treating cancers at all is because we've tried stuff and we've learned from the successes and failures of trying things, right? Um, it's not like when chemotherapy in, was invented, uh, we understood precisely which, you know, instantly knew when methotrexate was discovered, for example, that it would work really, really well for osteosarcoma, but not be super helpful for Ewing. The only way we figured that out is was honestly by trial and error. And this is decades ago now, but that's really how we've gotten to where we are today. And so I kind of think of translational research as this, this cycle where, um, you know, maybe there's a target or an idea of how to treat something. Uh, we get some, you know, pharmaceutical collaborators to develop a, an idea into a real drug or maybe they already have a drug, then that goes into a clinical trial where we see whether it works or doesn't. And then regardless of whether it works or doesn't, um, and especially when it works for some patients but not others, there's, we evaluate why that happened. And that leads us to a better understanding of the disease, which then leads us to new ideas about how to target the disease or the, or the cancer or the mutation within a certain subset of cancers, right? My, the problem we have is that the reality of this cycle is this, and it's been this way for a long time for very good reason. But um, the, the issue is that we, we do clinical trials and then it's very hard for us to evaluate our responses. We know whether patients have good clinical responses or bad clinical responses, but we never really understand too deeply what, what biologically was the cause of those, those, those uh, good responses or bad responses. And, and, and it's for the simple fact that it's very hard to do um, biopsies on tissue after completion of a therapy uh, from a patient who otherwise doesn't have a clinical indication for doing a biopsy. So we never really get to measure the, on the tumor, how the tumor responded. And that's important because we know from like in other diseases, for example, in leukemia, where it's very easy to sample a bone marrow sample. We know in leukemia, um, for example, uh, the, the cancer is in the bone marrow. And a bone marrow is a very safe procedure. It's easy to do. You can do a little sedation, but you don't even need it in adults. And so we're able to sample after the end of therapy or even during therapy, they're able to sample the cancer itself and say, how is it changing? And we know that cancers change in response to therapy. During the therapy, they change. During the therapy, they're finding ways to become resistant to that, to that treatment. And that's presumably true in our bone tumors as well, um, and osteosarcoma as well, that, that, they're, that the cancer cells are finding ways to become resistant to either chemotherapy or if, if patients go on to a targeted therapy later on, uh, finding ways to sort of evade um, the, the effect of that drug. And, and we never figure out what that is right now. And we, we need to change that. And so this, this idea of liquid biopsies started to pop up in cancer therapy. It's probably been now almost, it's definitely been more than five years uh, where this has been a known concept where um, we know that patients who have cancer, and this includes adult cancers, pediatric cancers, the tumors themselves um, shed a little bit of DNA into the blood. 
it's very little, but it's there's a little bit there. And they're just fragments of DNA that are floating in the blood. They get cleared out by the, the liver and kidneys, probably within an hour of being shed. But the, the tumors are kind of constantly shedding a little bit of DNA. So basically what you have in the blood is um, tumor DNA that's constantly there. And all you need to do to get at it is get a blood sample. But the problem is there's very little of it there. So you need really, really sophisticated methods of detecting its presence if you want to profile a tumor with a blood sample. But that is the idea of liquid biopsies. The other thing I'll point out here, um, and I'm not going to talk about during this talk, is that we're talking about, um, uh, th this talk is going to be mostly about this DNA that's floating freely in the blood. It's not inside a cell. It's actually already out. Uh, this is what's getting cleared. Less, Even less common, even more rare, most tumors, there's also sometimes entire intact cells floating around in the blood. And uh, my lab is working on ways to isolate those cells because, of course, you can only get DNA out of fragments of DNA because that's all it is. It's DNA. But you can get a lot of other stuff out of cells. So uh, eventually down the road, our, one of my lab's goals is to also get access to these circulating tumor cells. Um, and I hopefully we'll have a chance in a couple of years to come back, give another osteobite session about what the advantages of CTCs are. But that's still a work in progress. So today I'm going to talk about this DNA that's in the blood that's, that's, uh, that's floating free. And the main uh, idea you have to understand here is that it's not just cancer cells that release this cell-free or this uh, liquid, this, this circulating tumor DNA. Uh, cell-free DNA is also released from normal cells. And in fact, normal, and these are normal cells that make up like red blood cells and white blood cells. And actually, even in patients with a lot of high burden of disease, most of the cell-free DNA is actually from those white cells and red cells, so they're normal. So for us to find the tumor DNA in there, we have to know what we're looking for. We have to look for what makes tumor DNA different than the DNA from normal cells. So, so what does that mean? Well, this is for solid tumors in general, um, but and I'm not expecting anybody on, on in this talk necessarily to know what this all means, but, uh, but, but the, the the thing is that our tumor types, especially osteosarcoma, which is represented here, the DNA that's, that's in each of these cancer cells has been very significantly disrupted, um, which is not true in all cancer types. It's very, I mean, it's a hallmark of osteosarcoma tumor cells that the DNA has been like broken up, almost like you shattered it. It's been stitched together. It's been stitched together in this crazy sort of way and there's extra copies of some parts and other parts are gone completely from the cell. It's what we call aneuploidy. And so actually the way we detect ctDNA in patients who have osteosarcoma is by detecting the, this aneuploidy. Um, and this just shows that if we use some of these techniques, uh, we can see that it's not just adults uh, with cancer that have ctDNA, but also uh, patients with Ewing sarcoma, osteosarcoma, alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma, Wilms tumor, neuroblastoma, and basically now we've looked across multiple, all, the, all the major pediatric solid tumors, and, and patients all shed circulating tumor DNA. We're going to focus, obviously, today on this group of patients um, who have osteosarcoma. The, if we can find ctDNA, that's what we're showing here, is that we can find it in patients with, C, solid, uh, um, with uh, pediatric solid tumors. Uh, what, what, why does that matter? So um, if we can find it, what can we use it for? And I think um, what, we're, what, we're kind of, what we're trying to use it for is to understand a couple different things. So if you imagine a patient getting diagnosed for osteosarcoma, and I know a lot of the people on this call have actually gone through this, you can sort of 
you can sort of spread out the timeline of care along this along this along this axis here, right? And so patients at the beginning will have their the tumor, and we can get a blood sample at that time point. Then they go on to therapy, and the idea here is that as the tumor responds to therapy, there should be less circulating tumor DNA being shed, right? So you start out with some amount, higher higher low, but some detectable amount, and that as you go on to treatment, you should see that drop away. And actually, can one of the things that we're thinking about is, can we use that drop off or even the amount that you start with as a way to figure out who's most likely to respond to therapy? Then as patients are on therapy and they're in NED, no evidence of disease, can we use it as a way to monitor for the fact that even though on imaging, maybe it looks like there's no disease, is there some still lurking? And we don't know the answer to this. This is something that we we're working on, but we don't know if we're gonna be able to effectively do, but we have some strategies to try to, to try to tackle that. And then for the subset of patients who then go on to have relapses, you know, we talked about that cycle earlier on where we never learn why. There's often very, uh, there's often not another biopsy at this time point. And so we never figure out what happened, what changed about the tumor that made it resistant to the chemotherapy that the patient got all through here. And then if they go on to new therapies, maybe, maybe we don't know why they became resistant to those therapies either. So can we study this just like you'd study like multiple time points, just like you'd study a tumor biopsy at each of these time points to figure out on a DNA level what has changed. So I'm just gonna talk a little bit quickly at the beginning about um, this, this first part, like using it as a way to sort of figure out who is likely to respond to therapy and who isn't to try to refine our risk stratification um, this is the approach we use for um, a non-scientific uh, audience. It's a, uh, this, this idea of uh, what this copy number plot really implies is a little bit tricky, but the, what I want you to just kind of keep in mind is the idea here is we're trying to capture the DNA, um, and this is the chromosomes that that DNA correlates to. And when you see red bars here, it means there's too many, of there's too much DNA coming from chromosome one and not enough DNA coming from chromosome eight, as you'd expect from the blood sample. So that means that aneuploidy I talked about, where there's the least loss of some DNA and gain of others' DNA, it means we can use that to actually detect the presence of tumor DNA in a blood sample. So in a blood sample, if you see no, if there's no tumor in there, you just see a blue line all across here. But if you see these red dots way above the, the zero axis or green, green dots all below, then we know we've picked up, um, and we know we've picked up tumor DNA. We can actually use how much, how much this, um, these red dots are away from the, from zero and how far away these green dots are from zero to estimate how much CT DNA is in the blood from that patient. And then what we can do is we can say, if we, if we find patients with really high DNA, and or versus really low CT DNA doesn't mean anything. And that's what this Kaplan-Meier plot shows. This is work that um, we did together with Dave Schulman, who's a clinical investigator at Dana-Farber. Um, and basically what we did is we went to the, C the Children's Oncology Group biorepository. These are samples that have been collected years and years and years ago uh, for a totally different purpose, not at all for this reason. So you know they had, there are all kinds of caveats to this, to this cohort of samples. But these are all patient. These are all blood samples collected prior to the start of therapy for patients who had single site disease, so only localized osteosarcoma, who you'd expect to all have 
um, you'd all predict right from the start that the cure rate is around 75%. Um, and what we found is that the, the subset of patients, all again, who look the same um, uh, from all the clinical data we had in those patients, they all look the same. If they had high ctDNA, meaning greater than 10%, the likelihood that they would have go on to have a relapse uh, uh, characterized by this red line was very significantly higher than for patients who had very low levels of ctDNA, less than 10%. So, so we think just knowing right from the start, whether your ctDNA content is high or low can be really predictive. And this is a retrospective cohort. So we have, this is not ready for prime time. We can't start doing this already in patients. We really have to prove in patients who are getting the state of the state of the art therapy right now, actively now, we still have to prove this. So we have to go back and prove this, but it was our first hint that what we think that the amount of circulating tumor DNA in a patient's blood sample can predict how well they are, how likely they are um, uh, to be cured with, with standard therapy. And why this is important is that right now, the only way patients become eligible for things like a trial for high-risk disease is if they, if they present with metastatic, metastatic disease. But that could change. We could say, oh, you know, this patient over here with very high ctDNA, these patients in this category, maybe we should be treating them with more intensive therapy on these clinical trials to see if we can really improve this outcome and make it look like this blue line. Um, and then, you know, tantalizing, although I think we're a ways away from that, could we even break down this blue line into a group of patients who are at extremely low risk of relapsing? And could we even start someday to think about reducing the amount of therapy they get? Because we all know that the chemotherapies we use right now have really significant long-term risk. They have risk, risks of significant long-term toxicities. So the goal here in the long-term, and this again, it won't, this isn't impacting care today or tomorrow, but over the next five, 10 years, we hope that this is really gonna change how we figure out which patients get the highest intensity therapy and even identify some patients who maybe we can start de-intensifying therapy using less toxicity uh, and, still, and still have a, an extremely high chance of getting complete cures. That's really the goal here. Um, one other interesting thing that I know some, some people here have probably heard about is that um, you know, it, it looks like there's this one gene, MYC, um, that we know is a, an important cancer driver when it's amplified, meaning there's a lot of extra copies in each cancer cell. This has been associated now in multiple data sets. Um, I'm we, I, I reference here in the, in the notes here about the target data set, but other people uh, have definitely found this in other data sets, local, and then even some uh, uh, data gleaned from, from foundation uh, that, that a lot of MYC is associated with um, potentially harder to treat therapy. And um, what's interesting about this copy number plot from this specific patient, and this is a blood sample again, you can see that this, these red dots go way, way up here. And you know, the gene that's sitting right here in this spot, that's MYC. And so it looks like we may not, not only can we detect the presence of circulating tumor DNA, but we may be able to actually detect some of the, um, some of the genomic hallmarks that are also now emerging as high risk and low risk features. And so if we can not only pick up ctDNA, but also characterize the tumors from a blood sample, how cool would that be that we can really sort of come up with a cohesive risk stratifying strategy for uh, patients with newly diagnosed osteosarcoma. And this just shows, you know, not surprisingly that when we stratify by patients who have this gain and those that don't, uh, it's a small cohort, but it looks like the patients who have this gain um, do a little bit worse. 
So to try to validate all of this again, now so far we've just basically used samples that were sitting in the osteos in the COG repository, not even intended for this purpose. We really have to make sure that we now validate all these findings in patients who are undergoing therapy now. So Dave, the the person I mentioned earlier, uh, is running a prospective clinical trial. It's a Dana-Farber uh, uh, oriented study, but we're get, we're getting samples from the uh, COG repository from patients who are being enrolled on Project Every Child and also collecting serial samples from patients who um, either are treated at Dana-Farber or some of our partner sites. And we have, I think, eight or nine other institutions where patients um, are participating in this trial. And um, everything I showed you so far is all based on, on getting uh, measuring CTDNA prior to the start of therapy, so these pretreatment samples. And what you can see um, is that uh, when we look at those samples, we get what we saw before, that a good percent of patients, maybe about half of patients, have detectable levels of circulating tumor DNA. Now remember, these are all patients with localized only disease. So this is not patients with metastatic disease. Only with localized disease, you can see that at least half of these patients have CTDNA that's high enough for this assay to pick it up. Uh, and that's what we saw previously. And so, you know, we're going to try to figure out, do these patients have a different outcome than the patients using standard therapy than the patients who have less CTDNA? But the other thing we get to do in this study now, which we've never really been able to do in a comprehensive way, is we get to look not just at the what, what, what is going on with their CTDNA before therapy, but how does it change in response to therapy? And so what we can see in, in some of these plots here, and this is just a hodgepodge of the patients that have come on the study so far, uh, we can see that as expected, CTDNA levels start to drop. And so the question as we go from having, you know, 20-ish uh, patients so far in the study to having, you know, more like closer to, you know, 60, 80, maybe, you know, uh, will probably be the number of patients we have serial samples from on the study, we'll start to see are, is the slope with which this, this CTDNA levels drop do they mean anything in terms of predicting who's responding really well to therapy and, and who, who maybe this therapy isn't going to work for? Um, and so we, we don't have an answer for that. We have no idea what, if what we're seeing is good or bad for patients. We can't return these results, but it's just an indication that there's something we can learn here about how CTDNA changes in response to therapy. So in the last few minutes, I just want to talk about what else can we do with CTDNA. And, and this is all still very exploratory work. Um, but um, I talked uh, before about this cycle of learning from our, our, our clinical trials, whether they're successful or not. And the way we can do that is by really figuring out how, do, does, how does, how does um, cancer change over time in response to therapy? And the way we do that is we profile the tumor using CTDNA prior to the start of therapy. Uh, and then later on, if patients go on to, to, to relapse or progress, and then again later on, if they have subsequent therapies um, and continue to progress. Um, and so the idea here is that we know that patients with who present, for example, with metastatic disease, you know, patients get biopsies at one site, but we don't know if the tumors that are at other sites in the body have already changed. Are, is the DNA already different in some of those? And, and are we sort of making our plan based on this tumor, but, but we're like sort of ignoring what's happened over here, hoping that these tumors will respond in the same way. But the interesting thing about, um, CTDNA is that we know from other studies that it's being shed from all of these tumors. So for the first time, without having to get, without having to do multiple surgical biopsies, we may be able to study, at least in the in the research arena, what is what is going on um, across all the tumors collectively across across the patient's um, entire disease burden. 
And then um, in this other example I have on the right here, you have patient, you have a patient who has localized disease, you know, gets standard therapy, this tumor is removed as part of the surgical um, therapy. Uh, and then maybe down the road develops a, a lung metastasis um, at, at time of relapse. The problem is we often don't even go back and bias that tumor because we know what it is when we see it. Sometimes we do, but often we don't. Um, but we can easily get a blood sample at that time point and study what has changed over time between the tumor um, that we saw present at the time of diagnosis and now is, is, is developed, led to a new tumor in the lung that's now resistant to chemotherapy. What's changed about it? So we may be able to start looking at that. And, and how we can do this, um, uh, uh, well, so what we've seen previously in other, in other diseases is that um, the ctDNA is really good at picking up resistance mechanisms better than any single biopsy. So this is an adult patient who had a tumor that had spread to multiple sites of the disease and it had a BRAF mutation. It's a mutation in a specific gene and there's BRAF inhibitors. They, could, they specifically inhibit this mutated protein. And this patient went on that, had a good response, but then developed the disease. Autopsy, they, they, they actually biopsied a bunch of these different sites. And in each of the biopsy samples, they found one or two mutations that led to the resistance uh, against the therapy. But if they looked in the blood sample, the liquid biopsy sample they collected just before the patient passed on, they actually saw all of these mutations, all of the mutations that led to treatment resistant in that blood sample, suggesting that, as I sort of mentioned in the cartoon earlier, that actually the blood sample is a way to look at one shot at all of what's going on across the body in terms of the development of resistance to this therapy. And, and this is an example for rhabdomyosarcoma. We're still working on this. We haven't really, we don't really have examples yet of this sort of um, studying these serial samples yet in, in a deep, deep sort of way in osteo, but we're working on it. But I'll give you an example for rhabdomyosarcoma where a patient had high burden of disease at diagnosis, had a good response to therapy and then developed relapse. And this tree just shows you how different each, um, each time point was. And so this is that pre-treatment time point. You can see by the time the patient had their first progression, there were all these mutations present here that made this look different than this tumor here. Now we know that this tumor arose from that initial diagnostic disease, uh, but it's evolved, it's changed. It's, a, it's gained new mutations that weren't there. And even this bone marrow sample compared to the tumor biopsy sample these two were different from each other. So different components of the body had developed new, new mutations that weren't present at diagnosis and so on. And so I think we can start to use this technology to start understanding what we call tumor evolution and pick up recurrent patterns of treatment resistance. We also wanna think about ctDNA as a way to detect minimal residual disease in patients that look like they have no evidence of disease, but maybe there's some lurking uh, and, uh, and we know that that disease that could be still lurking would, will end up eventually giving rise to, to relapse. And so if we had a way to find this, perhaps we could start uh, um, relapse therapy much earlier when the burden of disease is very low and our chances of cure could be higher. We don't, we don't know, we'd like to try. Uh, and so we've worked on develop some more sensitive uh, techniques. So um, we, we, um, we actually used a study um, from the children's oncology group where patients were only eligible if they had had a relapse but had had all of their disease removed prior to enrolling on therapy. Um, and when we used our sort of bread and butter, what we call ultra low passage whole genome sequencing, we couldn't find any detectable ctDNA in any of these patients. Although we know from the study results that most of these patients ended up going on to having progression. Um, 
And so it means really that our bread and butter tool here for detecting ctDNA in this context wasn't really sensitive enough. So we went back to these same samples and we profiled them deeper, much deeper. And uh, this is a collaboration with Gavin Hawes, a computational biologist in Seattle. And when we deeper, in, when we sequenced them deeper, now we were able to start pulling out some evidence of some of these copy number changes that we know must be there. Um, and so we think that now we can use technologies like this to try to be even more sensitive during that period of time where we're trying to determine uh, patients look like they have no evidence of disease left, but we know some small subset of those patients may still have some disease. And so if we can pick that up, maybe we can think about starting relapse therapy earlier. One of the last things I want to talk about is we know that um, there's um, an inherited entity called the leaf Raumani syndrome, where patients um, are at risk for developing cancers throughout their lifetime. Uh, and it's because they have inherited one mutation in one of their P53 mutation, one of their P53 genes. One of the very common uh, types of cancer that patients with leaf Raumani syndrome develop is osteosarcoma. Um, but because we know who these patients are, we can actually screen them, and we do. We use um, whole body MRIs uh, every, once a year to look for evidence of, of cancer in patients with leaf Raumani syndrome. But we know we can do better, and so um, we've actually organized this group. Josh Schiffman's part of this uh, collaboration, uh, um, but this is a group of, of providers who all see patients with leaf Raumani syndrome in, in a cancer predisposition clinic. Uh, with the idea that we're going to collect serial samples from patients and try to create liquid biopsy assays that can detect cancer very early on uh, prior to the start of any therapy, prior to even knowing they have a cancer, so that we can identify tumors hopefully when they're at their absolute smallest and then hopefully much easier to treat before they metastasize, before they've gotten big enough that that, that therapies are, are less effective. And so um, this, this, I think, in the long run, hopefully will actually impact uh, patients who develop, go on to develop osteosarcoma. And then the last piece I want to talk about is just a project that uh, Make It Better has been very involved with. with um, it's called the Count Me In Project. Uh, the idea when this Count Me In Project started um, was uh, this idea that could, could patients actually influence the way research is done. Um, and this project, Count Me In Project, really started with metastatic breast cancer. Uh, and the idea was that any, any patient could just go, any patient with metastatic breast cancer could just go online, consent themselves to study. And then the Broad Institute, um, which is a collaboration with Harvard and MIT, would, would reach out to the institution and have them send in a sample of their, of their tumor that was, in, was already banked. They would profile it and then basically just push out that sequencing data to the public so that anybody could use it. Um, and this led to an enormous outpouring of, of uh, excitement and enthusiasm again, uh, across the metastatic breast cancer group uh, patient population. Um, and I think they now, it looks like now they have 5,600 men and women who have participated in this study across all 50 states. Um, and this is just an enormous amount of data. It could never have been done by one institution trying to collect as many samples as they could. Um, 5,600 participants, it's just amazing. So. Um, you know, when we started to hear about this metastatic breast cancer project, um, uh, a few of us, um, including the advocacy groups and uh, myself, Katie Janeway and others who, who have a relationship already with the Broad Institute reached out and said, hey, shouldn't we do this in a pediatric cancer? Um, and after thinking about it long and hard, we all agreed that the best disease to start with was osteosarcoma. And so I think in February, 
uh, we launched um, this osteosarcoma count me in initiative, uh, which is live now. People can go out and um, consent uh, to this study. We got incredible um, involvement from um, uh, patient advocates, including Ryan, <laughs> uh, and definitely a lot of involvement in, in sort of creating this uh, online uh, self-consent tool um, uh, through MIBG was, was probably one of the most involved groups, but um, a bunch of the other uh, in, uh, uh, advocacy groups that you can see here listed in the bottom. Uh, Katie and I have been sort of scientific um, co collaborators in this project. And we have uh, um, Alejandro Cicordero, Richard Gorlick, David Malkin, and Natalie Gaspar, who are really internationally recognized experts in osteosarcoma biology, who are all helping guide this project. Um, and so far, we've uh, 167 patients have uh, registered already for this initiative. Uh, 57 uh, patients have already started a survey about a loved one as well. So it's been pretty out, amazing outpouring of, of interest in this project. We, uh, this is just a little more of the details. I won't get into uh, uh, it too much right now, but unfortunately, right after launching this project, of course, everybody sort of went into lockdown uh, and a lot of the laboratories uh, kind of stopped doing any research, including the Broad Institute. So at the moment, we don't have any, uh, we haven't collected any tissue samples from the patients who enrolled, but we're just started to, to actually reach out. And I think, I think we, uh, I think uh, we have an example <laughs> of a box that's gotten sent out already. You can see on your screen there. Um, and so hopefully people in the audience here are starting to receive their, um, count me in uh, boxes to submit saliva. And, and of course, we're now starting to reach out to institutions to collect uh, tumor samples and blood samples when they've already been banked uh, from patients who wanna participate in this trial. We really want as many people as possible to participate in this. I think it's one of the things that's really important for people to know is that, yes, of course, like the advisory group, we're really interested in looking at the data and trying to make discoveries ourselves, but this data that's getting generated from these tumors, the sequencing data, um, is after it's sequenced, six months later, it gets pushed out to the public, whether we're ready for it or not. That's just the way it goes. So there's no siloing of this data. It's not, this project isn't for Katie and I, it's really for the community to use. And, and that's been wildly successful for Count Me. And I think in some of their projects, even rare cancers like angiosarcoma, they've had maybe hundreds of labs use their data and has resulted in dozen publications from their angiosarcoma project. And uh, we really hope to, that the exact same thing happens um, from the osteosarcoma project. So if you're interested or you know someone that's interested, it's really simple, osproject.org. Uh, you can email me too. I'm happy to send you out the, the link um, if you didn't get a chance to remember it today. Uh, but we're really excited about this project. And, and then the big news is that um, uh, uh, we just got a major NCI funding for this project. Um, so Nick Waggle, who runs Count Me In overall, and Katie Janeway uh, put in an application um, uh, uh, for a moonshot grant, um, and, and it got awarded a couple of months ago. So we're really ramping up our efforts around this project. Uh, and that, that grant specifically supports osteosarcoma and, and one other sarcoma. So uh, we're really psyched about where this project's going to go. Lots of people to thank. I think I'm actually a little bit over time. So... Definitely want to stop here and take time uh, to answer some questions if people have them. 
we don't mind you going over. This is all really exciting stuff. So um, we do have a few questions. You want to go ahead, Ryan? Yeah. So I have a question here that asks, is there a way for families in the green surveillance time point to help? Can we share our blood with our local oncologist? Um, that's a good question. I think it depends a little bit. I mean, I think the reality is um, going forward, we're going to be building in uh, blood sample collections now on every COG trial. We've already started doing that. And, and as hopefully people in this call know, you know, there is um, projects in development, even for at the COG level for um, creating a prospective trial that will basically ca capture uh, anybody who's diagnosed at a COG center in the United States, which is almost everybody um, with an osteosarcoma diagnosis will be eligible for participation on, 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 a, on a COG trial. And we're going to capture serial samples on every single one of those. Um, and, uh, cause I've written the language, I'm making sure that that happens. Uh, so from that standpoint, um, people will be able to participate. Count me in also, um, it's, it's a one time point, uh, sample, but if you consent to count me in, uh, I think as part of the kit, they send out a blood tube and you can go to a quest diagnostics lab. Uh, and get blood sent, sent in. Um, I think at your local um, institution, uh, the best way to get people to, I think consenting to any banking study they have in the end can be, can be really beneficial. Uh, there's a lot of projects that need to happen. It may be that your institution is one of the ones we're partnering with to study liquid biopsy. They may have their own liquid biopsy project and we need more than one group working on this. So it doesn't have to be a project associated with me by any stretch. Um, but even if it's not something that they're super focused on, participating in banking studies and, and biology studies is super important. And maybe at your institution, it won't be directly contributing to this one liquid biopsy type of an idea, but for, for sure it'll contribute to other ideas. And that's really important. I signed up um, as an osteosarcoma survivor, um, signed up for Count Me In before the pandemic. And I just got my box yesterday. <laughs> And I'm so excited about it. It's um, one thing to note that's pretty cool about it is it's 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 not de-identified, obviously, because it came to my mailbox, so it has my address on it. But without without my address, like my mailman doesn't know. Oh, I didn't know Anne Graham was an osteosarcoma patient. Like it's it's pretty. It's just a cute box, and so I'm I don't know. I'm just I'm so excited about this project. This is a way for osteosarcoma patients and patient families to inform research. Like we can all be mini researchers yeah. just getting this box. It's, it's so powerful. It's so powerful. Oh my gosh, please, please, please go to osproject.org. Um, and I do have a question. I just want to say, you know, I think what's been so successful about this and I, I count me in is not my idea. So, um, I'm, I'm bragging on other people. Um, uh, I think what's been so phenomenal about it is that right from the first project, right from metastatic breast cancer, the first thing they did is they engaged the advocacy community. So when you go through that questionnaire, when it feels like, Hey, you know, like someone actually thought about how to ask that question. It, it wasn't us. It was literally like, Anne and like everybody else in MIB and all the other people from the other groups, like it was really designed that way to make it really patient, patient powered research. I mean, and that's not an exaggeration. It's not a, it's not a euphemism It's we're not trying to pretty it up. Like it really is patient powered research. And, and actually the, the requirement for the moonshot grant that that's going to fund this now 
specifically was had to be empowered research like it had to be advocacy driven to some extent so it's it's pretty exciting it's so exciting and the other the other part i think that's that's worth noting is that it's an entirely benevolent project as well nobody's making any money on this on your data nobody's like raking in the bucks because you sent them your demographic data your bio data whatever it's it's um it's funded by this family like 100% and now there's a grant coming in Yep. But the Broad Institute isn't making money on your data. It's just it's just informing research. Right. It's, it's there's it's just a brilliant project. And, okay. and we're not even and we're yeah. not even hogging the data. We're pushing it out. Yeah, everybody gets it. Not, not to like not to Joe Schmo down the street, but to anybody yeah. who's a legit scientist who can like, you know, get IRB approval to review the data can get it. No strings attached. Yeah, for free. Yeah. It's it's so great. Um, okay, quick question on this one. Um, how did you pick the 10% cutoff for the CT DNA? Totally. It's, it was totally a retrospective look. We started by looking at detect, not detect, because basically if it's 3% or more, we can confidently call it, um, below that we just can't find it, but that's a limit. That's not because under 3%, it doesn't exist. It's just a limit of detection of our assay. Uh, and it was, you know, we could definitely see a trend of a difference, but when we looked at that really high level, it was so clear the difference. So, um, we basically did an exploratory analysis post hoc is what you call it. But the idea was to say, okay, we, we're going to use this retrospective cohort really to set up prospectively how we want to look at that, that trial where we're collecting serial samples. We wanted to know the right way to look at those samples before we even got rolling on that trial. So actually we're not even technically using 10%. We're gonna use um, the top 75th percentile, um, the highest 75th percentile of the cohort to see what those outcomes are. So that's a pre-baked in analysis that we're planning on doing when that study's uh, complete. Have you considered investigating the presence of circulating and disseminated tumor cells from patient blood and bone marrow in addition, in addition to the circulating uh, tumor DNA? Yeah, we're definitely looking at CTCs, circulating tumor cells. So, and part of why we want to do that um, is because we don't want to just know I, the way tumors become resistant are not just by acquiring new mutations. It's also how they regulate RNA expression and protein levels. And we can't measure that just by DNA. Um, so for sure, we're looking at that. We have um, a project projects completely dedicated to that and osteo, UN sarcoma and neuroblastoma, uh, it's actually looking promising. I don't know what level we're, we're even trying to do, go so far as to isolate the cells and do single cell sequencing on them. I'm not sure if that's going to work totally, but at least enumerating the number of CTCs and maybe looking at them as, uh, you know, isolating them, collecting them, and then looking at them as a bulk sample. Uh, we're going to look at protein and RNA. And I think that that'll be a nice complement to the DNA we're getting from cell-free DNA. So we're totally working on that. It's just, it's not ready for prime time yet for sharing. Yeah. Um, how hard is this? Like, this seems like such a great, like low cost, but high reward yeah. process, especially to uh, eliminate some of the higher dosing of, of chemotherapy as, as treatment goes on, like what's the, what's the, what's holding it up? Like, let's go. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if it's safe, is, yeah. well, is what, where are we at in the process? So um, different parts of it are at different stages. I think the saying that the pre-treatment, um, uh, the pre-treatment level is predicting, you know, very low risk versus very high risk versus standard risk. We need to validate it prospectively because what we don't want to do, what we don't want to happen is to um, pick higher intensity therapy and then it turned out that our data was bogus, right? And then we've added toxicity. Or we don't want to take someone who would have been cured with standard therapy, de-intensify their therapy, and oops, it turned out that it, we weren't even predicting the right people. So that's the thing. And that's the thing with like all these like that are out there, you have to understand what they can tell you and what they can't. So um, yes, logically, of course, it makes sense that if your ctDNA goes away quickly, it suggests a good response. But we have to prove that because if we're going to change therapy on it and we're wrong, man, what an unethical thing to do. So, so that's really important. We really have to like, we, it, it takes time. It's excruciating. I've had a lot of families reach out to me about liquid biopsy stuff and I try to send really long descriptive responses because I feel like I want people to understand what we know and what we don't know before, before people go out and buy some of these tests, which are now commercially available. So you just have to be really careful about it. Uh, I do think though, it's so promising that inevitably it will be prime time. It's just, it will be something that we use. Um, but I do think it's going to be several more years before we're hundred percent sure how to use it uh, in a very safe and productive way. For metastatic disease, is there a purpose in doing a liquid biopsy or is it too late if therapy has begun? Well, again, I, I think we don't know how to use liquid biopsies in any context, just to say for, for clinical decision-making at this moment, right? That's obviously what we're trying to change. So I think from a research perspective, we are like super hungry for blood samples from patients who have um, metastatic disease, because as I mentioned, we, you know, we think that we're really getting a limited picture from the biopsy because it's only from one place and it may help us understand. I mean, maybe heterogeneity is not a problem. Heterogeneity means different tumors have different patients uh, because they've evolved separately from each other because they're different places in the body. But we don't actually know if that's something to really worry about in a significant way, but we need to look. And so from a research perspective, we're very interested in collecting samples at all, all kinds of time points. It's obviously most helpful if we have one prior to the start of therapy and then collect them going forward because it gives us a more complete picture. Um, but at this point, we're trying to like, you know, get access to as many samples as possible. And certainly from the patients who uh, participate, for example, in the Count Me In, the OS project, um, you know, those are going to be one time and they're going to be semi-random, but I think they'll sort of break out into groups. Like in the end, we'll get enough patients where we have a whole bunch from this, this sort of scenario and a whole bunch from this scenario, and we'll be able to make something out of that for sure. If this liquid biopsy is implemented, how often would like a patient, uh, be needed to get these, like, uh, I guess what time span? between yeah. each one what they need for that information to be yeah. i guess the most accurate like what like because yeah. like at least for for me like i get like a ct scan now like every year to like reassess you know what's going on but for i guess for the liquid biopsies what would that look like i mean i honestly have no idea yet <laughs> and it's one of the things we got to figure out i think <laughs> um you know i think one of the the challenges with ct scans of course is that there's radiation for younger kids, there's sedation. 
uh, so it's something that there's 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 contraindications to doing it like very very often, right? That's really not the case for a blood draw, especially in a you know in like full grown kids. Like blood draw, you know, it stinks to get poked. There's no doubt, um, but there's very little like significant risk um, to of anything with the blood samples. So I think the potential is to get data much more often. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll probably have to do it that way to then figure out what the time points were that actually turned out to be very useful. Um, you know, I, I think some people feel like, you know, wh why the one year, like what's special about that year, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, and, and, and the reality is we don't really, there's nothing really special about that year. It's partly, it's partly that we're trying to balance in terms of imaging, you know, the, the downsides of the imaging, the risks for the imaging, like radiation exposure with the benefit we get from finding things um, before patients are symptomatic. There's a lot less of that trade-off with liquid biopsy because the blood samples are just, you know, aside again from that poke, which, you know, it hurts, but it's, it's, uh, there's no long-term, you know, there's no long-term danger of getting a blood draw. So I think we'll, we'll sort of eliminate that and really figure out in a, in a, in the most ideal world, how often do we want to do this? Um, but that's again, why we need people to participate in prospective studies for, I mean, for a million reasons we need that. But um, I think every, every prospective study going forward, in my opinion, at this stage in, in, where we've gotten to in cancer, every cancer prospective study should have liquid biopsy built in. And, and we're, we're, we're doing that, we're doing that. The difference between CT DNA and RNA? It's really just that DNA, um, we, look, we tend to, we, we think the DNA appears to be easier to work with because we know, I mean, we've known this for a long time, DNA is just more stable. DNA looks like it hangs out in the blood for about an hour before it gets cleared. Presumably the RNA is not even hanging out that long. Uh, you know, what in each cell, there's actually more RNA than DNA, but it seems like it's harder to find the RNA, presumably because when it gets out of the cell, it's just not stable enough. It would tell us a whole bunch of different things, though, too, like the DNA, uh, you know, uh, every, every strand of DNA should, every um, genome uh, in the cell should look, you know, pretty similar to the one of the cell next to it. RNA is based, you know, it's different genes are expressed. So RNA is, um, RNA is how DNA goes from DNA to a protein. It goes DNA produces RNA, then RNA produces a protein. So RNA is only present for genes that are being turned into proteins. Um, and so you get a different picture, a useful picture. It tells you totally different information. But I think we're going to have to capture the cells to get the high quality RNA we need because they'll, it'll be somewhat protected in those circulating tumor cells. And that's just still a work in progress. If you're a current patient in treatment, can you, can you do the CTDNA? For what, what I've showed you today and what we're doing, it's not a test that will return results. We won't, we won't send it back to your physician. They won't make decisions off of it. And that's because we don't know what the right decisions are to make off of it yet. That's what we're learning in this trial. Um, so it is possible to go out there and do like, you know, foundation one, foundation medicine just got FDA approval for a liquid biopsy assay. Uh, no questions asked. If you want to spend the money, you can go out there and get that test. Um, the problem is they're going to look for things like ALK mutations, which are relevant to lung cancer, right? <laughs> and, and the reason they're looking for the ALK mutation is because there's ALK inhibitors out there. As far as I know, I've never heard of an ALK mutated osteosarcoma. So, 
so it's not that it's a bad assay. It's a great assay. It's a really great assay for the right context. And I think that where we're still doing the hard work right now is around making sure we understand the context with which this data is relevant for decision-making in patients with osteosarcoma so that when we start doing it based on decision-making, we're as confident as we can be that we're making the right decisions off of the information. So you can't get this, I mean, you can go out and get this on your own, but my lab, for example, is not making this a clinically returnable result uh, type of assay yet because we can't tell you what to do with the, that information confidently. Right. Um, at MIB, we also worked with um, Richard Gorlick, Katie Janeway, Corey Painter um, yep. doing a, a testing and research directory. So you can go on our website. It's free. You just go on and you, it, you can choose whether you want to inform a treatment plan or you want to inform research and you can, you can look at what test you can take, where you can send biodata, et cetera. It's, it's a really great tool, which we originally thought was going to be really great for patients. And it ends up um, being really helpful for everybody to know what do I do with this data and, and what can I expect? And then who owns my data? And all of, all of those questions, as much as possible, we put into that, into that form. Okay. Last quick question. If, if you have a blood sample that you, that has been taken at Dana-Farber, is that, would that have been used for, from an osteosarcoma patient, would that have been used for research? If you were a Dana-Farber patient, consented yes to banking, uh, and had blood drawn at some point, it's very possible that at least that sample was used in some of the initial work to say this is, um, this is technically is feasible, which was obviously the absolute needed first step. We would have never gotten this far if we hadn't even known whether ctDNA was detectable or not. All right, so now we move on to um, burning questions we need to know okay, <laughs> about Dr. Brian Crompton. Uh, what other profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I would either like to someday write a novel uh, that has nothing to do with medicine or uh, become a scuba dive instructor. Okay, what was your first job? My, I, when I was like 16, I spent the summer working at um, the Connecticut National Guard with their uh, IT department. Uh, and I helped design like logos and stuff for, you know, header, letter headers and stuff like that. It was kind of fun. Favorite snack? You now know mine. <laughs> Oh God, I don't know. That's a tough one. There's so many. There's just so many. Uh, I mean, I could tell you, but I like, I love eating ice cream. It's not really a snack <laughs> dessert, but ice cream, ice cream's pretty solid. Chocolate's amazing. Chocolate? Yeah. Yeah. What do you hope for? I want to look back and say that I did something that fundamentally changed for the better the way we treat something. Finally, would you rather repeat high school or med school? Oh, definitely med medical school. <laughs> definitely <laughs> medical school. Uh, that's, easy. that's easy. Although I do miss, I mean, I miss playing sports in high school. I mean, that, that was, I mean, I think you never really get to go back to being able to focus on something so much fun as you do when you're like, you know, you know, the younger you are, the more you can focus on fun stuff. But um, yeah, I don't think, I mean, yeah. My high school wasn't ideally set up for nerdy people. <laughs> so I felt much more in my element in medical school. I don't know, Brian Crompton. I think you'd probably do better or just just as well nerdy 
or not. I, I got you fooled then. That's success. I'll consider that a success if I got you fooled. Um, I, can tell you, I got a few messages on the side saying, oh, Dr. Crompton, he's handsome. <laughs> so you're welcome. We, we, we talked good science and we, we boosted your ego. <laughs> Um, okay, so this is this is a nerd. You can't yes. take the nerd out of the nerd. <laughs> I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you're a nerd. I'm glad you especially you're a nerd for osteosarcoma. Um, okay, so uh, really so great, really fun, and such great science to to talk about and share and to hope for. Um, speaking of hope, today begins shopping for hope. Um, there are lots of great things to buy, including these amazing uh, color block hoodies, which are made by hand by Osteo Warrior and Osteobytes panelist, Charlotte. She makes these hoodies, they're so cute, they're really awesome. Um, and 100% of the proceeds for the sales of these hoodies goes to research, goes to osteosarcoma research. We also have storefronts from Useborn Books, Collect, Recycle, Make, Sensi, Zia Active, Pure Haven, LipSense, Kendra Scott Jewelry, Color Street Nails, Damsel in Defense, Pampered Chef, and of course the MIB Agent Superstore, which has t-shirts, water bottles, all kinds of cool agent stuff. Please join us and shop for hope this weekend. Every storefront has a connection to osteosarcoma and proceeds from your purchase go right back to osteosarcoma research. It matters. Find us on social media or go to our website, mibagents.org. Next week, uh, Osteobytes is welcoming Dr. Ryan Roberts of Nationwide Children's Hospital. He is also a researcher at Ohio State University. The title of his talk is Dear Lungs, Stop Enabling This Cancer. <laughs> He'll be talking about targeting interactions that facilitate osteosarcoma met uh, metastases. Also, be sure and sub uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can view our library of 24, 25 now, Osteobytes topics and rockstar speakers. There's lots of other great informational and entertaining osteosarcoma specific videos. You can also listen to Osteobytes, by the way, wherever you get your podcasts. So thanks for joining us everybody today. And thanks to our guest, Dr. Brian Crompton, for your work and for being here. Um, we hope for what you hope for. And uh, to our panelists, Andrew, who had to dash out, and Ryan Kennington. Um, really appreciate everybody. Thanks for being here. Together, we make it better for osteosarcoma kids everywhere. Thanks, everybody.